They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are Monsters Out of the Closet. I'm Nicole. I'm Tara. And I'm Shreya. Dear listeners, the year is quickly drawing to a close, but where once we might have expected holiday cheer or anticipation of new beginnings, something doesn't feel quite right. Have you noticed a heaviness in the air, a queasiness in your stomach, a false note to uneasy smiles? We end this off-kilter year with two similarly uncanny stories. Many of us find solace in the natural world, especially in such claustrophobic times. But on a walk in an idyllic garden, our narrator discovers a girl who defies logic and a much more sinister presence drawing closer. In the Garden was written by Ark Schofield and performed by Matt. Dearest, I suppose I ought to give some sort of explanation now. You may think that Fifteen years of companionship entitle you to something. The truth is, I don't know how I shall manage to send this letter. If I do, if it should ever reach you. I am writing because I want to explain it all to you somehow, but it's difficult when I hardly know how to explain it to myself. The last words I remember saying to you were that I'd be happy never to see your face again. You must have known that it was a lie, that I said it out of spite though I was convinced I meant it at the time. You could always see through me, and my tempers. Please don't blame yourself, my love, for my departure. I'm afraid nothing you could have said would have made any difference. There are three things which I regret. The first is leaving the door unlocked on that fateful Tuesday. I know you told me, again and again not to berate myself, that it could have happened to either one of us. You always were too understanding. It's one of your faults, my dear. The fact is that it was through my error that the door was left open. The beastly thieves got in. And all our lovely things were smashed. Our curtains torn. Valuables stolen. And there could be no staying in the house that night. We went to the hotel. And if it hadn't been for that... Well, there's no point in what-ifs. I only mention it. as that it is something that I can't help but regret. The second regret is the argument. You will remember the one. I was angry at you that morning, for not being angry enough at me the night before. Oh, again, you would say, it takes two to argue. And again, that would only serve to increase my ire. I wish I knew whether you were always calm through some congenital quirk, or whether the world had treated you so well that you had just developed into the most patient lamb. I was very angry with you that morning when we woke up in the hotel and I had set my mind on feeling guilty. I stormed off. We were just being served our eggs and kippers. Do you recall? I stormed off right past that poor young waitress. 
No doubt your tameness compelled you to apologise to her profusely. I had to go and let the red mists clear before I could be in the same room as you again. I went to the garden. The hotel had rather lovely gardens. Trees were all quite bare in November. I think I prefer them that way. It's like going to the museum and seeing all the lovely animals, without their fur or muscles. You get a much more intimate feel for them when it's just the skeletons you are confronted with. I walked through the gardens for some time, those exceedingly wide strides you always complained about, the ones that make it so hard for you to keep up with me. That's when I saw her. She seemed so peaceful, lying there in the rose bed. I'm not sure how I knew, but I did. She was dead. Since she was dead, it seemed to me there was nothing I could do. I just stood there, admiring the serenity on her face, not a worry upon it, the fan of her golden hair beneath her. Suddenly, or perhaps not all that suddenly, I heard a noise in the bushes. And this is my third regret, my darling, that I didn't turn and go back to the hotel, make friends with you again, report the girl in the rosebed. Instead, I let my curiosity get the better of me. I approached the rustling bushes. You might imagine, sweetest one, that if I had, by some miracle, no regrets from these incidents, I might at least have some in the events that followed. But I need you to understand, the things that happened thereafter, I can no more regret than I could regret breathing in and out. They happened as if in a trance, and I say that not to excuse myself, but to try to make you understand. I don't regret anything I did after that moment, because I was not the same person as before. I was bent quite low, and I had stretched out one hand to push aside the branches. It was an evergreen bush, one of those horrid box laurels that someone decided belonged in all the parks. You know my feelings on them. I don't have time for evergreens, they have such boring leaves. I will mostly tolerate holly. At that moment, I had one hand stretched out, but I didn't need to push aside the branches because, just then, a voice called out to me from behind. I would really rather that you wouldn't. He's in a huff, and if you bring him out now, he'll just make a nuisance of himself. I gave a small start. I turned around, and who should I find addressing me but the girl in the rosebed, sitting up and staring at me. Now, my darling, you must think me completely mad, but she was quite, quite dead. I was sure of it when I first saw her, and I was even surer of it now, for as I looked at her, I could see that pallor on her cheek, and I noticed that there was an odd twist to her neck, which I'm convinced had been broken somehow. All that superstitious stuff with ghosts and seances and the like was always more your cup of tea than mine. You have always been so much more willing to believe people. I'm not teasing. That gullibility and unworldliness has always been very endearing to me. But there I was, the hardiest sceptic, standing in the garden, being addressed by a dead girl sitting in a rose bed. She was staring at me, but her eyes can't have been seeing much, clouded over as they were. She was looking at me, I want to say inquisitively. Of course, the cock of the head could have been caused by that traumatic-looking neck injury, but I got the feeling that she was evaluating me. Who is he? 
I asked. Why, Lewis, of course. She huffed herself. The bushes rustled again. I backed away. This, of course, meant I was getting closer to the girl, but I considered her much less of a danger at that instant. And Lewis is in a huff? I asked. You know I don't really do well with children. This girl, I suppose she must have been around 12 or 13 year old. The age of your brother's children. I find them incredibly hard to converse with. I think I was trying to placate her and lead the story out. Yes, she replied glumly. He gets like this because I tell him off for always breaking their necks. This statement made my blood go cold in my veins. To hear that there was someone called Lewis in the bush with a penchant for neck snapping, well, made the hairs on my own neck tremble. Just at that moment, the bushes rustled again, and out of them trotted the most darling soft grey and white cat, carrying a bird in his mouth. His neck was snapped. He padded over to the girl in the rose bed and dropped the beastly thing on her lap. I averted my gaze, but as I looked away from them, I noticed that a thick fog had descended on the garden, obscuring the path back to the hotel. When I looked back at the girl, she was smiling sweetly at me and holding out a box of chocolates. I couldn't imagine where she got them from. I'm not normally tempted by such sugary treats, as you know, but, well, I was getting rather peckish. Our morning argument had rather messed up my breakfast plans, and there was a distinct gnawing hole in my stomach where those eggs and kippers should have been. So I took one. As I bit into it, the girl laughed seemed such a childlike and innocent laugh, like the twinkling of bells. I smiled at her, and I took another. The laughter turned brass-like and grating, till it sounded almost like choking. I had to cover my ears. And as the second chocolate fell from my fingers, I could see that it was covered in feathers. And there were feathers stuck to my lips, stuck with blood. It was not a chocolate at all, but a wing. The box of chocolates was the dead bird. I had been plucking pieces of its carcass from the outstretched hand and eating them. I must have screamed then and tried to run, but found my feet had been wound up in vines. A large pool knocked me to my knees. It certainly looked like Lewis, but he was now as large as one of the tigers we once saw at the zoo, and he was reaching for my neck. That's all I remember. Suppose I must have fainted from the shot, for when I recovered my senses, I was lying in the rose bed, and there was no sign of the girl or the monstrous cat. The fog still hung heavy over the garden, and I couldn't remember which way I had come from, or how to get back to the hotel. So I'm writing this, my dearest, sweetest one, to tell you that I'm sorry for my outburst. I forgive you for your weak will, I hope that somehow I will find a way back to you, or at the very least, a way to get this letter into your hands. I feel I've been wandering in these gardens, I don't know how long. Sometimes it feels like it may have been years. And yet, I don't feel weary. I only feel hungry sometimes, and even find myself wishing that I might come across the dead girl and her cat again, just to be offered another one of those chocolates.
no matter that they turned out to be a wicked trick. I do get ever so hungry, my darling. The nice thing is that all of that awful box laurel seems to have disappeared. I may have just imagined it there in the first place, but all around me are only the skeletons of trees and bushes, the bones of birds quite beautiful, with their necks all snapped. The pain of adolescence feels as universal an experience as they come. Unfortunately for some, the toxic stain of violence can leave an indelible mark during this time. In Changes, our teenaged narrator is forever altered by the cruel attacks of their peers, as well as by the ways in which they fight back. Changes was written by T.E. Hartley and performed by Tal Minier. Please be advised that this story features scenes of violence and gore. Serena Bollier is laughing at me again. She's not even pretending not to be. Her green eyes are fixed right on me. Even though I'm staring back, even though our geometry teacher is writing equations on the whiteboard. Serena Bollier doesn't have to worry about things like that, because during the test this Friday, the nerd who sits in front of her is going to let her cheat off of him in exchange for a peek down her shirt. She'll pretend she didn't invite it, and then Rod Raman will put that nerd over a lunch table for daring to look. This is the way of things. I have come to accept it. I use my jacket to mop up the spilled coke from my lap. Across the room, I can hear the clippings of a conversation. Took a piss. When I woke up this morning, I felt like I couldn't move. Heavy weights holding me down to the bed. Better that they had kept holding. Better I had drowned in that bed. Instead, I dragged myself out into the living room, where Mom had passed out on the couch. Woke her up for work, and drove here. So I could be here, for this. Quiet down, says Miss Peters. Not, don't say things like that. Not, do you need to go to the nurse? The bell trills and I stagger out into the breezeway. November wind cuts through me, so I pull up my hood. It's cold for Arizona, made clammy by the unseasonable rain. It drowns out the squeak everyone's sneakers make on the wet, polished concrete. So I don't hear a rod at my heels until he's upon me. Him? and his two buddies. Serena Bollier is back there behind them, watching behind a waspish smile, while Rod grabs my shoulder, turns me around, and shoves me into a wall of lockers. Asshole. 
the combination lock jabs between my vertebrae, and I lose feeling in my pinky. I wonder if it'll come back. It doesn't feel like he's broken anything, but these things happen. Stop checking out my girlfriend, Rod says. What the fuck are you talking about? Your clumsy ass spilled that soda because you were looking at her. I saw you. This is, by and large, the stupidest thing Rod has ever said in his life. And it has stiff competition. I'm so sick of him swaggering around like this. Like he can do whatever he wants. I grab his sleeve and try to use it to wrest his arm away from my collarbone. It does not work. Instead, what happens is he closes his fist around the material at the front of my shirt, yanks me forward, and slams me back into the wall of lockers again. A terrible cracking sound splits the breezeway. It is my head. My teeth taste like copper. The dizziness makes everything else raging in my head quiet for a second. Rod backs off then, not because anyone tells him to. Other students mill around him and head to their next class. A few stop to gape in silence. They're blurry figures, as if I'm seeing them through a rainy car window. Then Rod, the other two, and Serena are all blending in amongst them. Gone and I'm left behind to make the bumpy and painful slide down the lockers to sit in the puddle made from today's freak drizzle. Something sick and angry swells inside of me. It's dark and consuming, and I don't pick my ass off the concrete until after the late bell. I skip class and instead stagger into the bathroom, soaked like a drowned cat from crossing the uncovered plaza. Blood has made my hair sticky. It comes away on my fingers when I touch it. And there's something else, too. Some yellow fluid I don't recognize. My head hurts when I touch it, and the skin feels puckered around the wound. That night, I dream of digging my fingers under that protruding lip and opening the wound up. I peel my flesh away in strips and it falls to expose something else beneath my skin. It has been three days since Rod chased me away from Serena. The bell releases us from the school. I linger. Three cigarettes burn out, and the sun sinks down, and still I stand in the parking lot, waiting. The stadium lights from the field where Rod practices football flash out with a loud shudder sound. I am afraid. I'm not myself. I am not sure what I means anymore. I should tell someone, but there's no one to tell. His friends are not with him this time. Rod is in a hurry. He comes straight to the parking lot from the field, sweat making his shaggy hair cling to his forehead, making him look small. 
I put out my fourth cigarette on the hood of his truck. It is shiny and new, and as red as his face gets when he sees me do it. You fucking... He sees no need to finish. He comes at me. His hands are around my neck, but there is a knife in my pocket. The kind that snicks out at the press of a tiny button. It digs into his throat, just above the cradle of his collarbone. Blood drains out, staining the collar of his shirt. A gurgling sound passes between us. He looks shocked. What did he think was coming? He made me feel weak. This is what he deserved. This is how I had to show him. I'm not weak anymore. I pull my hand back and he slumps, sinks to his knees. His arms are on the outside of my thighs now. I put my free hand on top of his head. The blade is red. I open up his car door and shove him into the passenger seat. He's heavier than I expect, and turning pale. Like my mother looks when she is drunk. That is, maybe, what anyone will think as we drive past. I climb into the driver's seat of his truck and bring him... I am awake. My bed stinks of sweat and iron, and there is grease on my hands. I do not know where it came from. I do not trust the memories I have. I rub the sleep from my eyes and push hair away from my forehead. It is dried stiff. Out of bed, the shower water helps to wake me up, washes away grime. It's hot. Hot enough to fog up the mirror until after I've used mouthwash in place of my toothbrush. I pull on clothes that are ripped and too tight and old, but I don't have any new clothes to replace them with. Mom isn't on the couch this morning. I can't remember if she came home last night. But I get to school, and Serena is staring at me as I walk up. I keep pushing hair away from my forehead but it falls right back into place. I need a haircut. Serena approaches me. She's shorter up close. I brace myself, and she says, You look terrible. So you've said. No, Rod, you look sick. Rod. Rod. Rod, Rod... The name echoes around me. It is not my name. What is my name? I am drowning in a green ocean, and then Serena is touching me. My arm. I look down at my arm. It is not my arm. It's thick, and there is blonde hair where there should be black. Panic claws its way up my throat. I do not want his blonde hair, or his arms, or Serena. The room spins. Serena traps the panic in my throat by saying, You need to go home. Will you drive me? I'm not missing class for you, she says. And it sounds like you're not worth missing class for. Does Rod know she doesn't care? Of course not. 
Rod is dead. Then she asks, Where's your truck? I don't know what to say. I am not Rod, and Rod's truck is not here. Rod is fucking dead in his truck. I killed him. There is a three-inch knife wound in his neck, and he bled out through it, and I thought it would take longer to kill somebody. Serena's voice gets real low, sharp like the edge of that knife. Her grip strangles my arm. Stop embarrassing me! Are you fucking high? Rod is laughing, or I am. My awareness of it is a distant thing, as though I'm seeing it through a fog. Maybe Serena is right. Maybe I am high. She drags me back to the student lot and shoves me into the passenger seat of her car. While she gets the car going and pulls out of the parking lot, she asks a lot of questions. How I got to school without my truck, what she's supposed to do when I act like this, why I'm making this hard for her. Buildings pass as we leave the suburbs. I always thought Rod lived in the suburbs. My mom was right, she says. You're just a piece of shit burnout. Fuck you. What did you say to me? I said you're a stupid whore. For a moment, she can muster only stricken silence. But I am tired of listening to it from Rod and from her and from mom. Then comes the shouting about how she's the one driving me home and how fucking grateful I should be. But it's not me. And it's not my home. I've never been in this neighborhood before. The house is adobe with an open carport. The truck isn't there either, and Serena mutters quietly to herself, wondering what I did. The front door was white once, but the paint has yellowed in the sun. She leads me through. The whole house smells like cigarettes. Is your dad home? No one answers. Guess not, I say. My hands are shaking as I settle onto the couch. It seems like it should be familiar. Apparently, I live here. Serena knocks around in the cabinets a while and turns on the tap. I think something's really wrong with me. You mean other than the usual? Another laugh. She hands me a plastic cup filled with water. I stare down into it. It looks too shallow. The surface of the water is warping the light. The pictures look slightly crooked on the walls, too. Like everything is bowing slightly. I can taste uneasy bile on the back of my mouth. I swallow it down. Do you think I should have gone easier on that kid? Who? She doesn't know. Or doesn't remember. Or it didn't mean anything to her. I try to remember my name. Riley. Who's Riley? Am I wrong? Is that not me? With the soda. She shrugs. Nothing. Like I'd never even existed. Whatever has you tripping, you need to sober up. I'm not putting up with this shit. Okay. One of the shitty plastic blinds on the living room window is broken. And the sun is coming through, 
I squint at it. I'm tired of always having to take care of you. I'm not your keeper. Okay. She keeps talking. The sounds won't connect into sentences. They wash over me and sound more pleasant for it. But it progresses towards the pitchy as she grows hysterical. Are you listening to me? She grabs my chin and turns it up towards her. She puts her fucking hands on me, and that's the end of it. I drop the cup. Water spills into the carpet, sinks in instantly, splashes on our shoes. She yelps as it gets on her toes, shouts something about ruining her leather sandals. My hand closes around her neck as I leave the couch behind. Stop, she croaks. It's a rasp sound. Something crunches under my hand. She continues to gasp. Her fingernails dig long red gouges into my arm, but she can't reach my face. Her fist beats on the joint of my elbow. It does not bend. Then, like she's powering down, she goes slack. She's heavy, so I drop her. Her head hits the coffee table on the way down and I step over her to head down the narrow hallway. The scratches are bleeding now, tacky blood trickling off the webbing between my fingers, onto the laminate in the hall. At the end of the hall, there is a mirror. In it, I see her. There are few things as frightening as trying to understand something that just isn't right. Whether you're lost in a deadly garden or unable to recognize your own reflection, know that you are not alone and will stay with you through all the eerie days and the uncanny nights. Thank you. To Ark Schofield and T.E. Hartley for contributing to this episode, and to Matt and Tal Minier for their performances. Featured music was by Eric Matias, Rosha Crane, Scott Holmes, Sergei Cheremisinov, Blue Dot Sessions, Avoidant, Shadows on the Snow, and Ars Sonore. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. As always, our most sincere thanks to our supporting producers, Lindsay Holt, Lourdes Caland, Sero Lopez, Andy Hunter, and Matthew Morrison. And of course, we couldn't do this without you, our monstrous listeners. Our next episode and season three finale, Lost, will be released in late January. In the meantime, Join the unearthly crowd at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. Until next time, Monsters Out.